It is a joyful morning, as uh, always. It is a joy to see our kids up here, and I, I feel like I always need to make a comment about that. It's just beautiful to see these kids rejoice, and also just a, a wonderful picture of the body of Christ and personality, right? Some looked like they were happy to be up here, some not as much, but, uh, but it, it was just a cool thing. God has really been good to our uh, church family to see all these kids and to grow in the gospel and to uh, really just worship the Lord. And they were uh, a big part of uh, pointing us to Christ today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the Gospel of John chapter 12. We are taking a couple weeks break from Second Samuel as we look at some gospel texts. Um, and that's where we'll be on this Palm Sunday, the account from that gospel anyway on uh, Jesus riding in to Jerusalem. And uh, so we're going to read that passage in just a moment here and talk a little bit about it. But before we do, if you're new here to Real Hope, what you see on the screens is something we say before we read from God's Word. It is not Scripture, but it's an affirmation of what this church family believes about Scripture and trusting the power of the Spirit to make sense to that uh, sense of it to us as He illuminates it in our hearts. And that is what we trust in and that is uh, what we believe in the power of God's Word. The church needs the Word of God more than ever in our culture these days. We need the Word of God. So let's say this as we come to the text. Our pursuit is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be a biblically functioning community. We embrace it as truth, no matter how painful it is for our souls. To follow the King into eternity. We say that as we come to God's Word because uh, as we trust in what the Bible does in our heart, sometimes it is hard truths for us. Sometimes it, it hits our heart and, and really opens it up to what God has for us. And I pray that would happen today as we talk uh, specifically about the kingship of Christ, that He would rule and reign in our hearts this is what the text says, reading from verse 12 through 19 in chapter 12 of John. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, Fear not the daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I invite you to just pray briefly uh, between you and God that he would speak to your heart, that he would open your mind to his word, and that he would show you his son Jesus, who is the giver of life in all things. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this time together that we can open it up and see you. And as we look at this uh, 
account in particular that we would understand what Jesus was doing that day and what it means for all of us today. And so, Father, I pray that you'd be glorified as we gather and worship, that we would see our great need for a Savior if we do not know Jesus already. And Father, we thank you and we love you and pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So the Sunday before Easter, Palm Sunday is what we call this Sunday as it's become to come to be known. Shouts of Hosanna, save us, Lord. This is the day we celebrate as we enter Holy Week, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt. Palm branches waving in the air, cloaks being laid out before him on the ground. And it's good to look back and understand the meaning of this day historically, to understand what was happening on this day. And I want to help you understand what's going on here. It's good to look back and understand what is this all about? What does this have significance and meaning? But more, I want to help us understand why it's important for us today. Oftentimes in the Gospels, you can read a text like this and think like, what does that have to do with me? You see, I would fall short if I left that part out. We would just spend another hour today uh, thinking about the nostalgia of palm branches and cute kids singing to us about Jesus riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey. But I believe this event, rightly understood, has extreme significance to you and I personally and for our world. The beauty of the scriptures is that they are timeless, that they supersede time and culture, and they have deep meaning for us today. We see God's story and character unfolding, ultimately his plan of salvation. You see, Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday as a king. The question for us is this, what kind of king is he? And that's a question I would hope you would all ask yourself as you look at this text, what kind of king? That's what I want to help us understand, for it has meaning, and it's a vital question for all of us that demands an answer. It's a personal one that I believe each one in this room has to answer. We likely have many different ideas of what kind of king Jesus was, and you'll see that the people that day did as well. So it's good to know the truth and see rightly the king we all need. So with that, as I typically do, you can find them on the screen. I'll give you these direction by way of these four points that we'll work through in the text. Number one, this is the king who draws a crowd. Number two, this is a king who comes forward for us. Number three, this is a king who is crowned for us. And number four, the king whom we call king. The first point there is this is a king who draws a crowd. In our text, there is a big emphasis on the word crowd. You see that in the text that we just read. There are people that are always gathered around Jesus, much like we are gathered here today. It says in verse 12, the next day the large crowd had come from the feast, had, that had come from the, for the feast heard that Jesus was coming. To understand a text like this, though, you have to know what was happening up until this point. What's all the buzz about? After all, it says the next day. So what were they there for? The celebration of the Passover feast they remember the exodus of God's people from Egypt, the people that God had redeemed and called to himself. He saved them, and there's no coincidence about that, but you have to back up a little bit further. What happened before that next day? If we go all the way back, Jesus has become a popular name by now. He has the crowd buzzing around him. Going all the way back to his birth, 
He was born in Bethlehem. He had been around Jerusalem as a child, growing up, teaching in the temple courts at the age of 12. He visits every Passover year there with his family for 30 years, teaching in the temple, visiting every year. And there's this buzz and curiosity that's around Jesus constantly, right? And all of a sudden in his life, he grows up and John the Baptist then baptizes him, ushering in this this Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We'll talk more about his baptism in a moment, but Jesus begins to teach and perform miracles. Prior to that ministry beginning, he goes off in the wilderness for 40 days, which is an evidence of understanding that we need to understand, rather, is there was this idea of his temptation in the wilderness and that he, for us, kept the whole law. He did not sin. He was righteous, the perfect sacrifice. He then returns and again teaches disciples, calls them to himself, gathers people around him, teaching about the kingdom of God and what he was there to do, performing miracles, and crowds of people are around Jesus. Jewish crowds, ones who have been waiting for the restoration of the kingdom of God. And now here's Jesus, you have to understand this, claiming to be the Son of God, who is talking about the kingdom of God, and that he is going to usher that in. And there's this all this buzz and activity. But particularly, there's buzz and activity on this day because of what Jesus had just done. He had just performed the miracles of miracles. It was mentioned in the text we read. He raised Lazarus from the dead, his friend. He resurrects. If you go back and read about it, which you should, Jesus, in fact, proclaims himself as the resurrection and the life. And so people are around, and they're talking about this stuff. They are amazed what he has done, and they're starting to chatter about it and testify. Consequently, the religious leaders of the day are pretty ticked because crowds are starting to form around Jesus. They're starting to gain his attention, and they feel threatened by that. So they set forth a plan, as we know, as we walk through this week, they set forth a plan to arrest him and kill him. Why? Because he's attracting attention, all part of the plan. So Jesus retreats for a while, the buzz of anticipation around Jerusalem stirring so much so that they're wondering by the end of chapter 11 whether he's actually going to even show up to the Passover feast. And if he does, they want to know about it because they'll kill him. So Jesus comes back to Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem, two miles outside, hanging around the fringe of the city in the place where Lazarus was raised from the dead. He is there anointed by Mary. We remember that, and that's important to note in the story. He is worshipped. He is given worship through this gift of a year's worth of wages, anointed, poured out this perfume Mary does in true worship as the king. And then it says right before our text in chapter 12, verse 9, that the large crowd of Jews learned that he was in the area. They wanted to see him. They wanted to be around him. The next verses there in verses 10 uh, through 11, I'll read those right real quick. It says this, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. Crowds of people. It tells us it bothered the Jewish leaders so much, and this is kind of comical in a way. They planned to kill Lazarus. 
And I mean, for me, as I read that, I go, okay, like, I mean, he died once from illness. Jesus raised him from the dead. Isn't he at some point like the unkillable man? Go for it, I guess. But Jesus is just going to do his thing again. On account of him, people were starting to flock to Jesus. They were starting to go away and believe in him. This king was different. It's only after understanding all of those events to this moment can you really understand what's happening. You see, there's a crowd around Jesus on Palm Sunday like there is a crowd in this space today, but it was a mixed crowd. They weren't all right about what kind of king Jesus was. The same is true of us, likely, in this room. Some of you may think you know what Jesus is all about. Some of you may confess to know what Jesus is all about. But Jesus is a kind of king here that draws a crowd, but the crowd, you have to understand, is always a mixed bag. There are those who are there because they know what Jesus is about, but there are those who are there because they want something from him. There are those who are there that know what he's all about in, in salvation. They know that they need him. They know that their greatest need is saving from sin. Their greatest need is forgiveness, that restoring of the kingdom of God and a relationship that we have between a holy God disconnected because of sin, that Jesus came and restored that. And so they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, the Christ. But then mixed into that crowd, there's this other crowd. They're there for an entirely different reason. You see, they were intrigued by Jesus, but not by what he would provide for them or could provide for them, but what they could use him for. Does that make sense? There's this mixed crowd in there that didn't look to Jesus by what he was truly coming for, but what they could use him for. I want you to think about that. Jesus was a great idea to some in the crowd. He was a comfortable ally. Why? Because they thought he was coming to be a true earthly king, to provide stability from oppression, freedom from an unrighteous and oppressive government. He was a tool to feed their own self-righteousness and desire. Then, of course, there were those who hated him mixed into that crowd. But the point is this, is that crowds always form around Jesus. But it begs the important question for all of us, what crowd are you in? Or rather, who are you in that crowd? The one who is simply interested in Jesus because it works well for you? The one who can have maybe the idea of his presence in your life because it would work for you? Or is he the one who you see him for who he truly is? The one whom you could give your whole life to and worship because of who he truly is, the king? It's a good time to gauge that in our life, looking at it. Is it one of true surrender and worship? Is it one that, that you have really given your heart to Christ in? Or is Jesus just a neat idea to you, but not your complete hope and joy? You see, the people who got it understood that Jesus was not just a king who could draw a crowd, but he was actually a king who comes forward for us. You see, this is the personal nature of Christ. Jesus came to town and he was signaling a king that was stepping forward with purpose on behalf 
of the greatest need of his people. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that day, he does so fulfilling prophecy. It tells us there in verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You see, he came in just as it was written, and this is important. You've probably heard this before. He comes in not on a white conquering horse as some expected him to come on. A military king, right? To come forward and to conquer. But no, he comes forth in humility. Even in humility, as we would learn from Philippians 2, the kind of humility that is obedient even to death. And when Jesus rides into town, he is really riding in with a different aim in mind as he looks ahead at the events of the week to the cross. That's what the prophecy says. Fear not, daughter Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. All of this, the set has been, or the scene has been set, rather, for all these moments to follow. And it's strange here that it says that the disciples didn't fully understand these things at the moment but only until after Jesus died and then is resurrected and glorified. We have to liken ourselves to the Many of them were probably confused too. What is he coming to do? He's coming to establish his earthly kingdom. But after he died and was raised again and all that followed, they realized, no, Jesus is establishing a kingdom of God that is not of this earth, not of this world. Here he says, fear not, Child of God, daughter of Zion. That's what that means, that daughter of Zion part. There's a lot of complexity to it, but it referred to Israel's child, the one who comes from the holy city of Zion, the heavens, the place of God, God's people. Your king is coming. You see, this is very personal to them. Ushered in through the prophetic word, it was a promise. God would save his people, not in an earthly and political sense, but for eternity. That's the kind of kingdom that was being established. A new Jerusalem, an eternal one. As those people gathered, maybe like some of you, I would love if Jesus just came back to this world right now and he ruled on earth. And then that is not what he was establishing. He was establishing something far greater, far bigger in the world. That's the kind of king. And the coolest part of this king is he willingly comes forward for us. And I would add, just as the right time, as I studied that phrase, come forward, and thought about that more, as I reflected on the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, there's this fascinating deal, detail that points to all the sovereignty and timing of God in all of these things. You see, Jesus had complete control of every event in the Gospels to the minute. He was in charge of every detail. You can read the accounts like, oh, this happens, and then this happens, and then Jesus gets arrested, and, and Jesus is in control of every detail about that. Jesus had all of these details in his midst, in control, to the moment of his death and resurrection. If you go all the way back to John 6, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, there's a gem of a verse that right after that event in John 6, 15, it says, perceiving them to take him by force, kind of tacked on at the end, and make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain. You see, even after that miracle, people wanted to take him and force him into a kingship that he was not there for and not at that moment ready for. And that little verse reads, he just withdrew from that. They were going to take him by force and shove him into the role 
they wanted him to be in. And he just goes away in control. That's, why, that's not why he came. So nope, he withdrew. He slipped away. And if you fast forward ahead to the night at the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his arrest, there's another gem of a verse in John 18.4. Judas, we remember, one of the disciples, the one that had sold him out, betrayed him. He gathers the soldiers and brings them to the garden. And we see who is in control of this whole event. In John 18.4, it reads this, Knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus, they replied, and Jesus said, I am he. This idea that Jesus rides into town and comes forward and then stands in the garden and he steps forward at the moment in his care and control, a king that comes forward for us. At the right time, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave himself up for us as a ransom. He took our place. This is the Jesus riding in on the donkey that day, coming forward to die for the salvation of his people. When we who couldn't step forward on our own are desperate for a king who steps forward, for those of us in the crowd of selfish, sinful, self-serving, self-righteous people, what kind of king is he? The king who comes forward for us. I wonder, do you know this Christ as king personally and passionately? The king who came forward for you. You may be sitting here truly wondering if you really need a king like this, though. Maybe still curious why it all matters in life anyway. Yeah, he's a king that draws a crowd. Jesus has always been popular. Yeah, he came forward riding into town. But you know, did you know that he was also a king who was crowned for us, for you and I? Jesus Christ is king, and there can be no mistake about who he is and why this matters for us. You see, a crown signifies rule and reign and authority. It signifies someone in authority, in charge over a people. We're familiar with observing a place like England in a monarchy, right? The importance of the crown. The crown is special. It signals majesty and royalty. It signals authority, rule, and reign. And the people standing there on the streets in Jerusalem were waiting for a true king to be known made known to them, the waiting fulfillment of all these years of prophecy. For God had sought to redeem his people ever since the day sin enters the world in the garden, right? And he had moved his people slowly about, showing his hand. In fact, in Numbers 24, if you go all the way back there, prophesied a star that would come out of Jacob one day, and a scepter, there's the imagery of kingship, would arise out of Israel one day, signaling the rule and reign. Centuries later, we know when we... We look at this at Christmas time. A royal star would be in the sky, one in which the wise men followed to the Son of God, the baby laying in a manger, and they would present him gifts for royalty and worship him as king. He would grow up and begin his earthly ministry, ushering in the kingdom of God as he taught. And this Jesus, then before his ministry gets baptized, I said I would mention that again because it's pretty profound in understanding his kingship. When Jesus was baptized, do you remember what the heavens, the heavens opened up and what God said to him as he was baptized? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. What an incredible moment, the voice from heaven declaring the truth about Jesus. One, it identified him as a son. 
On one level, this marked out Jesus as the king of Israel, right? For the son of God was a throne name used frequently by Israel's kings. But as we know from much of the New Testament, son of God is much more than a throne name. It identified Jesus as the divine, eternal, begotten, second member of the Trinity, person of the Trinity, rather. Moreover, the phrase, with whom I am well pleased, is based on Isaiah, where God describes the sinless suffering servant who would die in the place of sinful people. So in essence, when Jesus was baptized, this voice of God declared Jesus to be triply crowned. One, he wears the eternal crown of heaven as God's son. Two, he wears the ancient crown of David as Israel's king. As we're studying through 2 Samuel, David is not the king we need. A man after God's own heart, we just looked at his failure to keep righteousness before God. And eventually, though, in the covenant promise, God promises there will be a king who comes. He wears the ancient crown of David. And thirdly, the crown of thorns as the suffering servant. Jesus the king, triply crowned for us as the king who is crowned. His crown and rule, though, was not a military one or a political one. I fear that some, even in the church, are still looking for that kind of Jesus. Bad news for anyone that's here today. Jesus wasn't a Republican. No party. His kingdom is not of this earth. It's a gentle one that holds up the rights and of the vulnerable and oppressed, the desperate needs of broken sinners. He didn't subscribe to narrow nationalism that some of the crowds wanted. The temple and the city would soon both perish. What kind of king was this Jesus? It was a king of peace that actually drives out fear. I want you to think about that. We have so much fear in our culture today, even in and amidst the church, fear of the crumbling structures around us. And Jesus rides in fulfilling this prophecy that says, fear not, daughter of Zion. When Jesus is your king, you have nothing to fear. I'm going to say that again. When Jesus is your king, you have nothing to fear. Jesus drives that in to us as he rides in on a donkey as the king, ushering in a kingdom of peace, like nothing in the world to be afraid of. Because it's not, in the, it's not of the world. That's the whole point. That's why I said all that I said to this point. He wasn't establishing an earthly kingdom. We would be right to look at the structures around us and say, this is kind of messed up. And Jesus comes in and says, my kingdom is not of the world. Like, and if you trust me like that, you have nothing to fear. Nothing. Think about those phrases from Zechariah that we saw, that we read, that Kyla read. Fear not. I just got done telling you Jesus is in control of every moment of all of these events. God is in control of every moment. That should bring us peace. Think about what you are afraid of these days. Like really just stop for a minute and say, what, am I, what is my greatest fear right now in life? Is it that, that I won't have enough resource and money? Is that our, our, our government would crumble? Is it I, I, I don't know what my kids are going to do? And it, like whatever it is, is the war over in Europe, which is a distant land, right to us, is that going to come over here? And what does it all look like if Jesus Christ is your king? When he came in and ushered in peace, like you have nothing to fear. Daughter of Zion. I already said that's a child of God, treasured possession. 
Those who place their faith and trust in Christ as king are his children, his possession, inheritors of the promise, the blessing. Do you know how much God loves you to have sent forth this king in that way? And then it says, behold, this is the one that separates the crowd from the followers. That word right there, behold. It's for all of us today. When that says, behold, this is the one that says, you know what? Beholders are worshipers. Beholders aren't just followers in a large crowd. Beholders surrender in response to kingship. Beholders obey. Beholders bow down and give all that they have and all that they are to Christ's kingship. And then this last phrase, your king is coming. He has come to us for salvation and he will return. And we ought to anticipate that and be faithful in the mission he has given to us as we wait. He is all of those things to us, but he is also the king whom we call king. What do I mean by that? I said there was a very personal nature to all of this. You see, at the end of this passage, the Pharisees are really frustrated because they see that the world has gone after him in verse 19 there. They look at each other and they're talking amongst themselves. You see that, they're, that you're gaining nothing, what they wanted. Look, the world has gone after him. He was drawing a people to himself, drawing people out of a crowd and into a circle. A response that he was going to demand at all the events that came in this week, his death and his resurrection. The disciples at the time didn't understand these things, but after he died, was raised, again, they looked back, ah, I see what Jesus did there for me. And this idea of this king, who you call king, is it shapes the way you live. It's who you confess him to be. Now, calling him the king or not calling him the king personally doesn't change who he truly is. Just as I talked about, he is the crowned king, the son of the eternal God, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that one day. In our culture, we like choose to believe in Jesus or not. That doesn't change who he is. Like one day, everyone will know. And it matters for your life and eternity if you get that right for your salvation. So a question for all of us is this. Do you confess Jesus Christ? Do you call him your king, your personal king? Have you trusted that this crown king stepped forward for you personally at the cross for your sin to save you? And does that life then reborn reflect submission to his kingship? You see, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead and some hearts were softened and believed and followed and some hearts were hardened. Jesus just rides into Jerusalem on this colt and some hearts were softened and shouted, Hosanna! because they knew he was their Messiah, and yet other hearts were hardened. They wanted a different king, and they didn't want to fully surrender to his lordship. Jesus goes to the cross, which we'll talk about more detail on Thursday and Friday, and I would just plug that by encouraging this. If you've never been to worship gathering this Thursday and Friday, how we do those here at Real Hope, you're missing out. Intimate times of praise and worship through a holy week. And some there looked at that journey to the cross and they mourned his death because they understood the brokenness of their own sin. And the world would understand soon what he was dying for and their punishment of their own sin. And yet others mocked, right, and scoffed. 
And some of us still, maybe even here, do that today. Maybe you wouldn't think that's what you're doing, scoffing. For why would a scoffer be seated in worship here today? That's absurd, right? And yet some of you in this room have not truly given him your life fully. You've not surrendered everything you are and placed all of your hope upon his death and resurrection. Some of us call Jesus king just like those people there. Shout Hosanna and shout praises to God, but your lives don't reflect it in obedience. Some of us scoff and turn our nose up when he asks us to do something for him, to give, to serve, to sacrifice, to give up something, to go, to tell. And so reflection, is he your king or is he not? And if you feel like I'm talking directly at you, that is not me. That is the Holy Spirit in your life. I would say this to the one who just wants the blessing and joy of heaven, and there are many in this culture who just want the joy and blessing and fluffy clouds of heaven where they get to see all their loved ones that have died before, but you have never trusted Christ as your personal and saving king, you remain simply in a crowd. There is no neutrality to Christ's kingship. Either he is your king or he is not. There's no middle ground. Either you reject him or you accept him. And each of us have to take sides in that, in that crowd. And so Jesus is the king, riding on a colt, the king of peace, offering for you salvation. The king who has come forward for you, ushering in the kingdom of God for all who believe and who will live forever and reign with him. That is our hope. And so I ask you, what kind of king do you call him this day? I wonder for some of you if he is calling you to himself. For we know that Jesus spoke these words even in John 6, all whom the Father gives him will come to him. You can do that today. You can call him your king. You can shout Hosanna. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And if you do, you will be called his child. You will experience the forgiveness of your sin, new life and power in the Holy Spirit. You'll inherit a kingdom and you will never die. That's the beauty of a story like Lazarus. He physically died and he went on to physically die again, but he knew Jesus was the resurrection and the life. So to all of you, I would say this, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king has come and he will come again soon. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come together to worship you today as many did 2,000 years ago as they saw Jesus riding in. Some looked at him and were excited. Some were excited because they knew what he was there for and some were just excited and they didn't have a clue. Father, some in that crowd were confused. They, they, they thought he was going to come in a different way. Father, some were mocker, mocking and scoffing. And Father, I have no doubt that in this very room there are all those attitudes present. Some are just curious about Jesus in this room. Father, some wonder what, what it all matters for. 
if they truly understand his kingship. Father, some of us know rightly who Jesus is and want to to serve him and obey him. Father, there might be people who are afraid in this room, as I'm sure there were those standing around fearing a government and a world around them and wondering what is all this and what's the meaning of this and what's going to happen, what's the end of this. And Father, I pray now especially for those in this room who have never trusted Christ as King that they would understand what you have done in sending your Son to this earth to die for sin on a cross. It's a very personal thing and a personal nature that all of us have to come to terms with in our own lives. Father, it's one thing to to gather as a crowd here and belong to a church body, an entirely different thing to know that we are known by the King of kings and Lord and Lord, Lord of lords personally. And that requires repentance of our own sin and a seeking of you to forgive that sin by only your death and blood at the cross. That we would believe in faith that Jesus is the resurrection and the life that he was buried and rose victoriously so that all who trust in him can have new life forever. And Father, those who come to him must understand that his life was given as a ransom, but a life to follow. That we would follow the king into eternity. Father, that we would surrender, abandon our clinging to this world, abandon our fear, abandon our self, all that we have for your glory. And so, Father, I pray that there are people right now who are crying out to you for forgiveness and trusting in Christ by faith. And if that be so, they know, like many of us in this place know, that we have a hope and confidence, as we sang about earlier, that we have a hope in his name is Jesus, that he is the hope for our family, for our relationships, for our marriages, for our children. Father, he is a hope for us as we walk through this world and face difficulty and, and sickness and even death. He has our hope for that. Father, this kingdom that Jesus comes to establish and has come to establish is not of this world. And I pray that you would ignite the passion of the church to go and preach that to a lost world around them. Father, especially this week as we desire to invite neighbors and friends to worship on Easter Sunday, that you would you would just ignite in us a passion to go and invite. Go and tell other people about this king. Go and tell other people who are in the crowd who are curious, fearful, or even expecting something else. And they would be met with the graciousness of Christ a Christ who dies for us, who comes forward for us, and Father, that we would worship him. I praise you for this day. I pray that we would shout Hosanna through the day, through the week. I pray that we'd gather in our worship. It wouldn't be another week on a calendar, but it would be an attitude of our hearts. And Father, I pray that we'd anticipate rightly those who trust in Christ, the coming back of Jesus to take us home. May you be glorified and praised. And we pray all of these things in the name of our King Jesus and all God's people said. Let's stand together and sing this last song, appropriate King of Kings, as we worship him this day.